0: Please note, this podcast contains discussions related to death and suicide. These topics, narratives, insights and discussions may be distressing or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Dr Mary Cassidy and I was a state pathologist in Ireland from 2004 to 2018. Welcome to my podcast, Life in Death brought to you by GoLoud. I'll be taking you through the world of pathology and forensics, digging deep into the roles of experts in crime, from the crime scene to the law courts. In today's episode, we'll be talking to an old friend from my past, Robert McNeil. He's an anatomical pathology technician who was my right-hand man in the mortuary. When I first met you, it was a way back a long, long time ago in the 1980s. And I was uh, I think I I didn't know you well when I was a trainee pathologist because I didn't really have much to do with the mortuary in the Western Infirmary in Glasgow because I was affiliated more with the Royal Infirmary, the other big hospital. Um, on the other side of Glasgow, and the smaller hospitals attached to it. So I didn't really get to know you until I moved into forensic pathology. Um, And by that time, you were in charge of the the mortuary. Um, You had got yourself a a proper job, shall we say. I'm sure your mother was delighted you'd eventually got yourself a proper job. Uh, But how did you get there? I mean... I'm sure as a a child, you you didn't aspire to being uh, an, an anatomical pathology technician, as they are now called. I'm sure you had other ideas.
1: Absolutely, Mary. Um, it was circumstances that drove me into to the job. Um, uh, quite common, I guess, for a lot of young folk where um, I myself, was, my, my first love was, was art and um, I was hoping to get into... Uh, well, I'd got a place in uh, a London art school uh, around 1967, I think it would be. Um, and so I went down to London with my portfolio and uh, the timing was poor because it was a time when... Uh, students throughout the world were protesting about all kinds of things it was supposed to be the the, the youth revolution um and in particular the the, the protest of the Vietnam War and so on so I became involved in that and as I was walking towards the the art college all the students were walking out <laughs> so um so I decided to join them um and uh, and that was the end of my aspirations to um to, to art um, and uh, I, I met again girl down in London um, and, uh, and she became pregnant and I found myself having to find a job very quickly um, and get married very quickly. So um, coming from Glasgow, as you know, Mary, uh, that would be expected, the very least would be expected of you. Uh, so I came back to Glasgow, I looked for a, a, any job and was offered a job in the Western Infirmary uh, University Pathology Department. And my first role was as assistant to the Pathology Museum curator, and that took me into the post-mortem room. Uh, very often, uh, before uh, the organ retention scandal, as you know, long before that, uh, and I would gather specimens and um, from postmortems from the pathologists um, and mount them in perspex, and they would be used for teaching doctors uh, in, in pathology in the department. Um, and occasionally, the pathologists would ask me if I would give them a hand, you know, for a particularly heavy body or or, or or if they were short-staffed, and and I. I found it absolutely fascinating. I, I absolutely loved working with a pathologist. Uh, um, it was a, a profession that I didn't really know that much about. I knew what a doctor was and there were so many variant um, specialties that they went into. Uh, but I thought, and I don't want to sound patronising towards pathologists, uh, Mari, because... <coughs> As you know a lot of pathologists in those days were um, were revered actually because um, I was always told that pathologists were the most qualified doctors even beyond because oh, because they had um, had to sit so many difficult examinations long after they had qualified as doctors and um, uh, uh, and some of them were quite eccentric to say the least and um, and I have to say, I must say this, Mary, that um, when I first encountered just your good self coming in to carry out um, cases in the hospitals, because for those that may not know, Mary would, uh, being part of the Forensic Medicine Department in Glasgow, would do a tour of the hospital mortuaries, often in the mornings, um, and then go to her proper job in this public city mortuary uh, and carry out the more serious forensic cases. But she would come to... Uh, to to our department quite often to carry out cases of people who had died of natural causes but the, 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 the medical staff weren't able or couldn't sign a, the death certificate and so the, the, the forensic experts were called in uh, as independent doctors to, to to do that and I must say, Mary, uh, you were uh, for me a revelation in terms of having to um, in the past work with very, um, some of them did wear stiff, stark shirts in those times, with collared shirts and so on, um, and at last a, a human being uh, came in who was just a normal person who was um, uh, who, who was revered not only by. Uh, by your own uh, fellow professionals, but uh, by all technicians that worked with you, it was an absolute joy having to work with you because you were so relaxed. You gave the technicians credit for the work that they did, whereas we were really quite anonymous people beforehand, you know. And so, so that's my tribute to you, Mari uh, oh, And thank you can you, you can edit <laughs> out as much of uh, that <laughs> as, as you like.
0: But I think you were lucky because you had Rod Burnett um who was a pathologist there, um, who became who was my boss when I was when I became a trainee. And I think he was another he was the one who instilled in me how significant your role in the mortuary was because the pathologist couldn't do anything without a decent technician by their side. And um he was the one who you know said to me, This, you know, these people should be properly trained and they need to be properly trained and Given credit for everything they do, and and I and I always did, and I always I'm glad that that came across because I always felt that you were you know an integral part of the team.
1: Yeah, and uh, he also I think it was quite common. Uh, That mortuary technicians in those days were uh, came from quite suspect backgrounds you know they they would um, they would often be folk that were exporters with drink problems um, where there was no one else, nowhere else would would for them to work but (laughs) in the bowels of the mortuary Um, and so Rod Burnett you mentioned um, you know another great pathologist uh, he took it upon himself um, to Raised the the standard of technical staff so much so that he was um, he was predominant in creating. A professional association where exams uh, on uh, on uh, mortuary technology, anatomy, physiology, etc., uh, became absolutely necessary in order to, to to get gain employment. And in fact, nowadays um, it, it's expanded to the point where to become uh, an anatomical pathology technician, um, you, you need to have a degree in in the sciences. You know, so uh, that was due to mainly to Rod Burnett who uh, yeah. was a, a great a great hero of mine He
0: it was a great champion for the cause I mean, yeah. and, um, I, I was riding on his coattails but um, as I say, I think he was instrumental in, in, in keeping it going and keeping the force going. I know it's out of his hands now I mean, he's, he's retired now as well but um, he left a legacy which I think, um, I don't think so when I moved to Ireland there, there was still a huge Antipathy towards the the, the the mortuary staff, and again they were mm-hmm. being treated very badly, and it took a while for them to catch up and yeah. get to the same level as they have been or they had been in in the UK.
1: That's right, especially since when you went there, you stole one of my best technicians, Mary. <laughs> uh, p-
2: there's
1: patrician. no honour
0: in the mortuary.
2: <laughs> so, Mary, if I could just cut across, what was what was it that, that you found so lacking here? Compared to what you had left in Glasgow. Well, as, it, uh, as Robert having worked in the
0: hospital mortuaries, I was used to a, ce- a certain standard, you know. You <laughs> know, you do you don't get used to that. And the, yes, as I yes was indeed. as I was going through my training, Rod Burnett, who was my the consultant in charge of our department, he was busy working on the, the training of the technicians at the same time. And so as I was progressing, the, the role of the technician was also progressing. So by the time I became a consultant, it, the the expectation was that all our technicians in the mortuary would be proper anatomical pathology technicians and they would all have undergone the period of training and they would have sat exams. And these were intelligent people, you know, <laughs> they weren't the scum of the earth. And then I, I moved into forensic pathology and uh, the, as I, the first day through the door in the city mortuary in Glasgow, I was introduced to the mortuary technicians who all introduced themselves as, hello, I'm Alec, I'm a slab man. And I, And I went, oh no, here we go, starting from scratch. And then I moved over to Ireland and I found <laughs> there was the same kind of um, not. It wasn't quite so bad, but it was. You know, I, I'm a hospital porter, and I and I help out in the mortuary. And I said, no, this has got to stop. <laughs> There's no helping out. You're either you're either in it or you're not. Brilliant. And so again, over a period of years, we managed to build up the esteem of the mortuary uh, technicians. And nowadays, again, all of them have got qualifications, which is only only right. Only right. We became much closer, but not in that way, very close. We worked very closely together um, when the the city mortuary in Glasgow was going through its renovations and it closed for a period of time and Robert offered, very kindly, to take in all the waifs and strays of Glasgow, including myself and all of the other forensic pathologists and he took on a role. That must have been quite a change for you as well, because you were used to a very ordered society. You were working in a hospital, you were dealing with the hospital death, everything was nice and clean and tidy, and then all of a sudden you had the onslaught of us.
1: I think that there there was an element of selfishness there, Marie, in that um, I myself... Mainly due to working with people like yourself, became really interested in forensic work. You know, proper forensic work, dealing with mm-hmm. suspicious deaths, etc. Um, and uh, it, it, it seemed to me an opportunity that I, w- I could become more involved in that side of things um, if we if, if we offered one of our our mortuaries. But I think one of the the really positive things uh, that came out of that was working with with the police um, in Glasgow. Um, And as you know, we... Uh, the technicians were, were very much involved in the, the, the not just the routine work uh, that was done in the city mortuary, which was in the main people, again, who had died of natural causes, uh, but often with, with cases of homicide and, and much more serious uh, cases, which really interested me. And so I got a great um a, a a great experience in in working uh with cases like that plus for the first time we went on call um uh, uh, and that mm, was
0: that's
1: right. that, that 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 was a, a bit of a, a revelation i, I think I, I loved the idea of going on call and getting up in the middle of the night um because there's been a murder in glasgow uh, and at that time there was quite a few murders in glasgow <laughs> exactly um but in actually physically doing it was uh, a, a, another a, another problem because um, there were very few of the NHS technicians who, who were able or willing to, to, to take part in that. But I, again, uh, I, I enjoyed that very much indeed. And um, and that developed into something quite, um, quite important, something I'm quite proud of actually, which was... Um, uh, it was recognized that, that in, in high-profile deaths, such as murders, shootings, etc., that there was a need for radiography, um, mm-hmm. uh, for x-rays to be carried out on the yep. victims' bodies. and. Um, and because we were a, a hospital base with our own radiography department, um, I managed to persuade the senior radiographer that in the, a case such as, uh, as a murder, uh, they could provide a radiographer Um, to come along take x-rays of the bodies prior to the post-mortem examination. Um, And that, I think, was extremely successful. And I was so proud of it. I I, I, I had wee cards made up um, to (laughs) hand out to policemen um, that if there was a murder... um, They, they they could call me. I would call the radiographer, <laughs> and the, the, we would meet with the pathologist and the police at at the mortuary. But uh, 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 there was a, a little twist of black humour in that, in that uh, I called the, 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 the team the Forensic Radiography Response Team which if you spell, if you abbreviate it it's the FART Team <laughs> and so the, 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 police, um, the police when they called me up in the middle of the night um, to help get me out of bed I had to smile when they said you the guy from FART
0: <laughs> so. brilliant, brilliant. That's true, because in the city mortuary, we didn't have access to to x-rays and we, you know, we were literally guddling in the dark until we, as I say, we, we moved from the dark side to the bright side of the hospital mortuary and suddenly you made the, this available to us. And it, and it was very timely because we just started seeing a lot of shootings coming through the, the gangland wars. And we, prior to that, as I say, we had just been sort of fishing about. Um, a bit like we did in Bosnia, and we'll come on to that later, but um, yeah, it was a revelation to us to be able to use that technology to, again, to make life much easier for us as the, a as the pathologist.
1: Yeah, and it also um, was the germ of something much bigger, I think you'll agree, Mary, in that... Um, the city mor- the old glasgow city mortuary yeah. was doomed really i think it had been condemned for about 50 years before it actually <laughs> closed down uh, a bit like the dublin pol- police mortuary yeah. <laughs> um and and so uh, again i think uh, uh, through a conversation with your yourself um we felt that well we've got all the all these facilities in a hospital radiography yeah. laboratories pathology etc um wouldn't it be wonderful if they could all be combined? And so uh, I started uh, a a campaign that uh, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 I regretted many times because there was so much um, uh, aggression towards me for even suggesting such a ridiculous thing. Um, uh, 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 However... It came to fruition, not just in Glasgow, but throughout the UK, where where public mortuaries gradually closed down and hospital facilities were used by the police and the police absolutely loved it I think I had a great relationship if you remember with was it Kenny from uh, the forensic uh, police department yeah. who who I worked very closely with and trying to come up with plans and how we could persuade um, those dinosaurs in the NHS mm-hmm. that it was a good idea.
0: Yeah I mean it was incredible I mean it, it took a long long time for us to push it you know, over the line, because I remember even going back to the early 1990s and myself and Mike Curtis actually went up to the Crown Office and said, look, if you're not going to renovate the mortuary, we're going to do it. And we had our fingers crossed behind our back going, because we were going to get the money to build a mortuary. But we didn't say that to them. And they were going, and, and where are you going to get your funding? I said, well, that's none of your business. Either you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. And so eventually they were persuaded to upgrade the old mortuary, but. Meanwhile, in the background, you were still, you know, putting together your plans of having this super duper mortuary in the hospital setting, which now exists in the old Southern General. I don't even know what do they call the Southern General these days. Queen
1: Southern. Elizabeth University Hospital. But there was a lot of um, a, a lot of antipathy towards it, and I remember even coming from uh, the forensic medicine department, where uh, quite yeah. a quite high. a a, a meeting I went to with the the pathologist in charge at that time who was dead against this merge. He wanted to build... His own mortuary, you know, and as you said, where the hell were they going to get four million or whatever it was to do that? Mm -hmm. And I thought it funny, I burst out laughing when uh, a meeting with all the NHS executives and the police, um, the designated site for the mortuary was the old Southern General Hospital, where there there was going to be (laughs) a new build there. Um, And next to that hospital was a sewage works. Still exists there, Very fitting. Um, and and his his argument was that oh, I don't want to work in a place where the smell from the sewage works emanates from from us. And I thought, hang on. <laughs> You're a pathologist, you know, you I deal know. with de- decomposing bodies and you're worried about the smell from the sewage works, you
0: know. So. There's no ventilation, we open the windows and every so often we'd get a, there'd be a chap on the door and they would, somebody would be sent in from the high court saying, Judge So-and-so asked if you could close your windows, the smell is appalling. I said, you try it in here, never mind outside coming back to to how things changed as being a, an Apt I mean what what is it you know how, how does somebody become a, an anatomical pathology technician these days Robert you you mentioned something about a degree is that necessary or can they go through other channels well
1: um it, it's it's not essential yet because um, what, what's happened sadly over the last few years is that um, because of the the higher standard of, of technical expertise, um, so too has their their um, their income, their salaries raised. And to many, mm. to many employers, they find that um, it is cheaper to have uh, what they're calling now uh, technical assistance, Really, um, going back a step uh, to to uh, oh. the the past days, and. That is really saddening because um, one of the, 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 the tricks that um, that's being missed is that, as you know very well, Marie, technicians are very, mm-hmm. very much involved with the, the families of the, the deceased. Yeah. They, they come to mortuaries you know, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm um and i personally found that, that that there were some people involved in mortuary work um who really shouldn't be involved in talking to families and mm-hmm. uh, especially when it comes to asking them of uh, families asking questions, medical questions yes. that they that, that they're not really qualified to answer, and and so I think it's important that that if technicians are going to be put in that position, um, mm. they should know when not to ans- answer questions that they don't have the answers to, and who to refer them to, and for those people yes. uh, that we refer them to to be to, to give some time to the family. So it's vitally important, I think, that technicians are registered as health professionals and given mm-hmm. the um, you know the salaries and that they they really deserve. Apart from anything else, um, in order to train, uh, to attract uh, young people into the job, um, and I think mm-hmm. one of the other things that we kind of pioneered in. In, in Scotland, in the west of Scotland, was in employing young female technicians, which before yes. had never really been heard of. Um, and that followed on from the employment, I guess, of uh, uh, of female forensic pathologists, because mm-hmm. the, 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 you know, suddenly, from what was a male-dominated area, uh, women were coming into the, the, the profession, and that had a great knock-on effect, um, mm-hmm. to the point where... Uh, when I retired in 2009, there were more young, intelligent women applying for jobs in mortuaries mm-hmm. uh, than men, which was quite a, almost a complete mm-hmm. turnaround.
0: Yeah. And there had been talk that with the change in the MRC path, the exit exam for pathologists, that um, some of them could take the option not to do morbid anatomy or the post-mortem side of it. And there was talk that the technicians, the APTs would take over that role. Has that not come to anything or has that been mooted or what's happened with that?
1: It it hasn't happened uh, and I can't see it really happening at all. I did once meet a Canadian uh, who, who was called an advanced practitioner who was licensed to carry out uh, autopsies uh, or any autopsies except Mm -hmm. for uh, suspicious deaths that that, um, that they were always carried out by pathologists, and, and there's very good reason for that, of course, it's the pathologist mm-hmm. that has to give, um, as called give as evidence. experts, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. and give evidence, and uh, it would be a stretch, I think, to have a technician put up against a, an eminent professor um, who would be carrying out a second autopsy, you know, because I think that when experts like yourself give evidence, Um, There's a lot of um, faith put into people like yourself and and, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I I always felt it was a bit like a a theatre where um, pathologists, some pathologists were absolutely brilliant at being able to explain cases and have that kind of authority. Uh, that's believed by judges and by jurors. And, um, and and so, as well as all of the qualifications that people like yourself have, to be able to mm-hmm. stand up in court and face that um, barrage of questions all aimed at trying to discredit your work and yourself, um, it, it, it must be pretty daunting and something that I wouldn't even contemplate being involved with.
0: But but we know ourselves that there are in the UK and Ireland, but certainly in the States, and I think in Australia in some places, that the APT does the majority of the examination and the pathologist stands with their hands folded and nodding sagely behind them and lets them get on with it. And even in the States, they have a system whereby um, there's a court case on today, here's the file, just go. But I didn't do the, you know, just read it out <laughs> And it's, it's very, very different from the kind of rigid system that we work with, which I think is so much better. And I think people can rely on it then rather than you, you you know you never know what you're going to get. Well,
1: yeah, and the the question from a prosecutor or from a judge to uh, an expert is: Did you carry out the examination? Hmm. Um, I think it would be a bit untruthful uh, if you to say yes. I absolutely carried out every aspect of the examination. When the pathologist might have been away playing golf at the time, you know. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's just read he's just read a report. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that someone had written. So uh, no, I think I think it's vital. I think where, where technicians can can maybe gain more mm-hmm. credibility is doing uh, are doing more in routine cases, uh, yes. de- de- deaths that can be explained, um, mm-hmm. more academic postmortems, and um, but they sadly have suffered terribly as a result of the organ yeah. retention scandal, where uh, um, academic postmortems are very rarely carried out nowadays, and. And that's a great tragedy because of the work that was done in uh, in research, for example, in mm-hmm. transplantation and so on. Uh, uh, all of those um, areas were improved mainly because of autopsies that were carried out by pathologists on
2: uh, failed cases, if you like. Uh, could, could you ever see the situation where there would be um, the, the autopsy being done with the Pathologist or the apt wearing a a headset and visual imagery and it being beamed as far as 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 a zoom audience can go, so that so that an an autopsy being conducted live could actually be overseen by specialists left, right, and centre around the world.
1: There's a big issue, I would say, there of consent. Um, and uh, I think the police would be, in particular, mm. quite worried about um, uh, postmortems being made available uh, that they don't have particular control over. Um, you know, consent, informed consent, has become a major issue yes. now, uh, and so. Uh, you know, doctors would have to explain to the families of the 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 the, the their loved ones who's going to see, it, what's going to be done, and so on. And uh, to approach families at a time where they're you know bereft in grief, that uh, uh, you know, and get into any detail about what what's going to happen to their loved one might be something something tricky, but. Uh, but I do agree that that that's postmortems, and if they were in control or, or controlled by uh, by the, the coroner, the, the 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 procurator fiscal, or whoever. Um, uh, to be shown, for example, to fellow professionals, uh, such as other pathologists or or mm-hmm. the police, um, there might be some, some area there. Another way that's been talked a lot about over the last 10 years has been uh, uh, autopsies that are being uh, carried out using scans, um, you know, uh, full mm-hmm. body scans, um, And there's some people think that that's a good idea, but I remember um, I think it was Rod Burnett, Mary, that that when Mm -hmm. that was first talked about, saying is that well, all you can see in a a diseased organ in a scan is a blob, you know, and so Mm -hmm. um, to, to be able to examine that blob, if you like, without physical intervention um, <laughs> would be a bit a bit tricky.
0: When you look at the Australian experience in particular, they do um, CT scans on all of the bodies that come through the mortuary. And then they select from that the, the chosen few that then go on to uh, what we would call a proper post-mortem. And they've gained a huge amount of experience in interpreting the findings on the, the scans. And I think the, the big issue was that the scans, as you say, all you see is a blob. So it's good if there's a big blob. If it's a tiny little blob, and sometimes it's quite difficult to work out what that tiny little blob is. And so they started then to introduce doing um, angiography as well as the scanning. You know, a post-mortem examination in a straightforward case, as you know, would maybe take an hour. And now you're sending a body out to do a CT scan, and then you're going to get an angiogram. And then at the end of that, you're still scratching your head going, well, do we need to go for a, a full postmortem or not? So sometimes these things sound, you know, very grand and very good, but in fact, you know, sometimes the old ways are the best. Old farts yeah. like you and like me.
2: <laughs> there would be a whole new discipline of radiology then, you know, postmortem radiology, because radiologists or radiographer radiologists sorry are, are only used to saying. Uh, a living body, CT imagery or MRI, wherever you want to use. But the post-mortem interpretation would involve a whole new uh, subspeciality, wouldn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's where you get the um, forensic radiologists come in. And I think that with the changes in Forensic pathology, that the forensic pathologist should be au fait with radiology. I mean, I, I, I come from the generation that A, we didn't have computers when I was at school, B, we didn't have CT scans when I was a trainee doctor. So all of these things are kind of alien to me and you're having sort of yeah. to pick them up. I mean, they're. It, a trainee, you know, at the moment doing medicine, I mean, they know all of these high flying things. We had no idea. I mean, put up a straight x-ray for me, I can find, I can work out where we are, where everything is. And usually I'm just looking for bullets in a body. So it's nothing nothing too fancy. But you know, with the scans, it's always very nice when the, when, as Robert knows, you take the body down and they push it through the scanning machine and then they go. Um, would you like a copy of the scan? I go. No, I just like a copy of your report. Tell tell me what's on it. I can't. Yes. I, I don't understand it. Yeah. I can't interpret that. But it's, you're you're right, Paul. That's a discipline, and its on its own. And I think it's something that the forensic pathologists should embrace. They should have good proper training in that as well. <laughs> Going to say this that um, Robert. Um, Our our activities weren't confined to to Glasgow and there were a few changes in the forensic department and we had a new professor um, who came up from London who was very involved in the military and uh, working with other agencies. And he introduced us to an agency called Physicians for Human Rights. And as part of that, they were involved in the investigation of mass graves. um, These, you know, the war crimes and you at that time were uh, now part of our team, really, whether you liked it or not, you were were seen to be one of the faces of, of forensic pathology. And we got asked initially, I think it was, we were asked to go to Rwanda together. We never got there. So our first foray into working with the UN was when it came to uh, former Yugoslavia. And I think the way things worked out, you went out to former Yugoslavia before I did. So I think you were one of the first group who went out there to investigate the mass graves. What was that like?
1: I got a a call um, soon after the, the UN had discovered through aerial photography uh, areas that they thought there might be mass graves uh, round about the Srebrenica area. Um, and so there had already been a small team of archaeologists and anthropologists led by uh, the famous uh, uh, archaeologist Bill Hagland who went out there and established Mm. that there were graves there Uh, and so I was asked uh, along with some others to go out and join the first Mm. team of um, forensic specialists to help set up a mortuary, a temporary mortuary um, somewhere relatively safe because this was... um, uh, in the early part of 1996, and the Dayton Agreement had just been signed, um, uh, bringing peace to the area, but uh, but there was still a lot of hostility and sporadic fighting mm-hmm. going on. So anyway, we, 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 we established a, a mortuary in this hellish building. It was a former garment factory that had been Mm. uh, badly bombed and uh, just cleared an area and set up a mortuary there. Um, And what was wonderful in some ways uh, about that was working with fellow international specialists if you like we had a a radiographer from Mm -hmm. switzerland Uh, a lot of americans were involved um uh, because physicians for human rights was an american-based charity and Mm -hmm. so that that was fine but none the only people that i felt were i felt all it turned out not to be um, the, the, as true as i had hoped, that the mm-hmm. only people that I felt would be absolutely comfortable with his work would be the pathologists and the technicians, because we had worked mm-hmm. uh, with, with death at that time. I had been working the dead for 30 years and so I, I, I mm-hmm. kind of um, I, I was comfortable with what, what we might encounter. But nothing, absolutely nothing prepared us for, um, for what we were then to face, which was the sheer mm-hmm. numbers of bodies. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, coming from the the, the mass graves in Srebrenica. Uh, they were taken from the graves to us in uh, container trucks, sometimes containing up to two hundred bodies at a time. And um, uh, and I really felt sorry for other team members, such as radiographer, had never seen a dead body before he did this work. And we touched on forensic radiography earlier mm-hmm. uh, And Bosnia. I think improved that you know way beyond mm-hmm. anything yeah. had done in the past. Um, so uh, personally, uh, we, we just got on with the job. But there were in that first uh, deployment, there were so many interruptions, um, either threats to our safety because the, the, there were people in whose interests it would be. To um, uh, to disrupt the work, and so uh, there were uh, twice we had to abandon the mortuary um, uh, because of fear of, of uh, reprisals from from the Serbs who were in the who were active mm-hmm. in the area, um, and uh, it, it didn't occur to me that we would have faced any threat like that, um, uh, and so I was a bit naive when it when it. Came mm-hmm. to to worrying about that, but we got on with the job. But the, the upshot of that trip for me, Marie, was fr- frustration because um, although we had so many deaths to deal with, uh, because of the disruptions, um, uh, often caused by the media as well, who who wanted right. uh, uh, you know access to the the mortuaries mm-hmm. because the, the charity needed the the exposure, you know, the publicity. Yes. Um, and so I felt that when I left there uh, after the first deployment, um, I hadn't really achieved very much. Uh, and it was through uh, a phone call from you in, in the following year in ninety seven, um, when you had recommended me to Bill Hunt, the uh, eminent mm-hmm. pathologist, yeah. to join join his team. And that gave, I jumped at the chance to do that.
0: I think you underestimate um, what you did achieve in Tuzla because I came out, our, our paths crossed because you'd gone out and on your way back, and I was just coming in, I was getting literally, almost literally parachuted in. And by that time, the, the system was set up. We had the tables set up. I mean, as you know, we had no running water. Um, the electricity was a bit mm, iffy. We had no means of. They, they'd set up a, a temporary shower area that we could could use because it was really pretty bad. Um, and uh, but uh, by the time, I arrived. They had they had the system in place, and the things had had quieted down, and we were left to get on. We were heavily guarded, and we were told not to stray too far because there were still landmines in, in around that area. Um, but we were we were kept very much contained, and we were literally ferried back and forward to the houses in which we were we put up. So you had actually had set it up in a way that everybody else coming in thereafter, could they immediately just slot in and get on with the job. So you had the teething problems, and we could just come in and just get through the, the bulk of the, the work. Uh,
1: the pandemic PPE was a big issue at the beginning. Mm. Um, uh, in, in Tuzla, uh, in the mortuary we were given a pair of marigolds to, to get on with the job. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that that was about it. And, um, uh, uh, and so we were able to set up protocols um, that hopefully were continued because mm-hmm. it, it made sense that, um, that that we hadn't we we needn't reinvent the wheel every time yeah. a new team took over and so um, I, I, I helped with, with with writing up protocols for mainly for other mm-hmm. technicians to follow um, yeah. uh, uh, and that helped but I think that. Uh, One of the most difficult things about that first job was living uh, with a family that I lived with, a mother and daughter Mm. uh, in Tuzla, Um, and the daughter who was the same age as my daughter at the time, uh, who who was Mm. enjoying life in art school in Glasgow, this girl uh, had endured a four-year siege in Sarajevo, and and she took took me into Sarajevo uh, uh, one day, she said for a coffee and started to tell me that every male member of her family had was missing. And this was in '96 when, when the mother felt that their, that they, they were still, um, that their, their, their loved ones, the, the, the girl's mm-hmm. father and her, the woman's husband was still alive, to the extent yeah. that she she set a place at the table every night for them, expecting them to walk through the door. Mm. And what was particularly awful, you mentioned there was no facilities in the mortuary. The, the mm-hmm. shower that you mentioned hadn't been installed mm. when no. when we first went there. So mm-hmm. we had to go home stinking of stinking. death and, and yeah you know? and and the, they were told not to talk about our work but they they, they knew mm. immediately what we were yeah, doing course. there and uh, and the point that, that that one of the reasons that the, the girl amila took me to sarajevo was to emphasize to me that if we found her father um not to tell her mother mm-hmm. because she strongly believes that he's still alive and you know and i thought well what are the chances of finding a father and amongst all that carnage Because one of the the, the most, I think the most, the most difficult thing about Mm -hmm. um, the work in Bosnia was by 97 going into 98 it became apparent Mm -hmm. that the Serbs had re-entered many of the mass graves uh, in Mm -hmm. the autumn of 95, 96 um, and uh, the winter of 95, 96, taking all the bodies out of the, the graves that hadn't yet been discovered. And using mechanical mm. diggers had torn them apart, um, yeah. and reburied them in smaller mass graves in much more difficult places to find. In the hope that they would disrupt the work, and if we ever did find them, um, that would never be able to put them together again. And I think yeah. that that, that uh, and that certainly had an effect because a job that was expected to last maybe two or three years is still mm. to this day ongoing. Twenty-six yeah. years. 25 years later they're still discovering body parts in mass graves and uh, and later on we were dealing with bodies that had uh, or body parts that had sometimes come from up to five or six different mm-hmm. mass graves and the effect that that had upon their loved ones. Um, being Muslim uh, as you know they mm-hmm. wanted their, yeah. their loved ones put upon the the, mm-hmm. the, the bereaved must have been just terrible, absolutely terrible.
2: And how many bodies were there unearthed in terms of any count whatsoever at this stage? From Srebrenica, of the
1: 8,500 bodies that were murdered over a three or four day period in July of 1995. So far, uh, over 6,500 bodies, um, and that represented something like 17,000 body parts have since Mm. been put together, um, and those bodies have now been handed over to the, the families to bury. Most of them. In a mass grave, ironically, uh, a beautiful cemetery in Sre- just at the edge of Srebrenica, um, uh, 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 and I uh, uh, returned there a few years ago with some uh, some uh, colleagues, um, uh, and uh, and saw it for myself. And uh, and what what's astonishing about that is that Srebrenica was once a Muslim, predominantly Muslim town. Um, uh, now there are only two or three Muslim brave enough to live there because the Serbs overran the town and placed Serbs uh, civilians in the homes there. And to this day, the mayor of Srebrenica, um, who is a Serb, denies that anything had happened. He believes that the bodies, the 6,500 bodies that are in there came from the Southeast Asian tsunami because they couldn't identify them and yeah. various other pathetic excuses because the, the, the genocide denial is to this day rife and an increase in, uh-huh. in Bosnia, sadly. Um, so there were there were over 100,000 killed uh, in, in the war. Um, and I should mention that up to 50,000 women uh, were systematically raped, um, uh, and that became, you know, a genocidal crime as well. And uh, yeah. sadly, th- that element of the story isn't often told. You know, I, I go to schools and talk to kids about the the, the genocide and in general about hate crime, etc. Um, and I also go into prisons and talk to prisoners. In both these cases, I'm not allowed to talk about um, the sexual violence that took place.
0: It was devastating what it what happened to, to these families. I mean, and we saw it then, as you say, our facilities improved, but the circumstances of these people didn't improve. And I think one of the most important things that we were doing really was trying to help identify some of these people. And I, I mean, I haven't been back for years and years, but um, uh, my contact with the military in Ireland um they've been t- they've been keeping me up to date with you know because they've been part of the peacekeeping going out to these areas and they were saying that there's been a huge drive to get dna and get most of them identified most of the bodies that have been recovered identified and that's becoming very successful which um in the early days, what we were doing was pretty primitive in, in means of identification, but it was all we, we could offer at yeah. the time.
1: And I think that to some extent, it's it's something that uh, I'm sure we're both quite proud of being part of because uh, yes. the, 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 the forensic work that was done in Bosnia was groundbreaking. You talk about DNA. Uh, in the early days, the it was far too expensive and you had to send it abroad. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, and because of there were just such a vast amount of bodies to deal with, mm-hmm. uh, they set up a, a laboratory in Sarajevo where they perfected the. Um, the, the the processing system of DNA matching that became eventually the gold standard in the world because mm-hmm. um, it got to the point where uh, people who had suffered um, natural disasters or whatever uh, yes. would send samples to Sarajevo for for uh, identification and um, and that's become along with the, the forensic the gathering of the physical evidence um, that we were a part of um, uh, 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 that's become um, the, the most successful forensic investigation mm-hmm. in history. Uh, and it's certainly the biggest. And, uh, and as I say, it's still going on um, to this day. And yeah. uh, I think it's, it's that, that's something that's not
2: um, not talked about often. And Robert, if I can throw in a question as, as, a, as a GP all my life and dealing with people who have been confronted with, you know, horrendous experiences like you're just, just discussing. Did, how did you handle this emotionally? At the time, Paul, um,
1: it didn't affect me um, mentally at all. It, 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 for me, it was just a job that I had to get on with um, and deal with. I, 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 it's a very interesting question, though, because um, I, I, I had not suffered at all Um uh, 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 any issues with what I'd seen and I put that down to the fact that, well, I've dealt with death so long, and, you know, as his Mari, uh, it wouldn't affect me some of the other team members I know um, uh, uh, had come to m- me personally and uh, and and asked that same question, how do you deal with it, and I used to just say just get used to it, you know, and if you can't, then maybe you shouldn't get be doing out. it and, Yeah, um, and so that was absolutely fine. And in, in 1999, I was asked by the, the foreign office, actually, through the professor of, of medicine in Glasgow, to go out to Kosovo when the war was was raging there. And uh, it was a very small team, just a few police officers and, uh, and myself and an anthropologist. And uh, we were working very intimately with um, families who would come to our temporary mortuary and take us to small graves where there might be six or seven people working there um, and those deaths had occurred like days or weeks before so the the, the, the bodies were still um, uh, the, the, the injuries and the cruelty inflicted upon them and And that's something that we haven't mentioned. It's not just executing uh, these people. Uh, You know, Mari and I worked with victims Mm -hmm. from uh, Luka concentration camp, for example. And at at the briefing, we were given um, uh, advice on what to look for in terms of injuries. And some of them were Mm jaw-dropping. But getting back to Bosnia, um, when I came home from that very difficult trip, it was, we were given compulsory post-traumatic stress counselling um, and yeah. I, I'll never forget the uh, the, the, the counsellor asking me did I have any bad dreams or any symptoms and so on and I kind of laughed it off. I was in the company of of some pretty macho police officers who uh, wow. complained about the food and the you know pathologists, you know, not being a Brit um, and so on. Uh, anyway, um, uh, and I kind of brushed all that off as well. Um, and it wasn't until almost the day that I retired uh, from, from my job, after by this time 40 years working with the dead, uh, I started to experience symptoms of PTSD that, you know, that I recognised. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it didn't bother me because I always felt that, oh, well, it's just bad dreams. Everyone has them. Mm-hmm. Nothing compared to what the, 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 the people themselves went through. And that's where um, my painting came into it, because I then started to depict some images from from those those nightmares, and it worked for me. It was pure therapy, and it was very short. And I should stress that it was very mild. You were just terrible, bad serial dreams about. Uh, uh, about events, you know, well, mm-hmm. one in particular, Mario Lava, is um, uh, 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 I was accidentally dropped into a pile of dead bodies looking for a particular one that we thought we had lost, um, and they, they had let. My, go, my ankles, and I fell into this, this, this horrible mess, and um, uh, uh, and that that was a particularly graphic dream that uh, I I, tra- I found it hard to shake off. And um, but, but the, the the team thought it was quite funny.
2: <laughs> can I can I tell you as as an outsider listening to that particular story, Robert? That would be the worst nightmare I think any of us could possibly feel or experience, to be dropped into a grave, even if it's empty, but to be dropped into a into a mass grave. That's pretty scary stuff, Robert. I don't think I could have got out of that without a half a <laughs> bottle of uh, Best Irish whiskey washed down by another half bottle of Best Scotch whiskey.
0: Uh, I mean, I think the, th- the thing was, you know, you're saying that after all those years, you suddenly begin to have not quite flashbacks, but you know, start to dwell on it. I think when you're there and when we've been working with it, it's our normal, you know, it's not normal to anybody else, but it's normal for us to be dealing with death and to dealing with mass graves and things like that. But as soon as you walk away from it, I think then you're looking at it from the outside and suddenly you're like everybody else and you're going, hang on, that really isn't normal because that's what I feel now I feel that it doesn't bother me and I don't have flashbacks and I'm not suffering from anything but now when I hear of things now I think about it differently from when I was there I'd be thinking when I was working in Ireland and I heard oh there's been a shooting or a stabbing I'd be going right well I wonder what what we're going to do I wonder what much it's going to go to how long it's going to take what do I need to do what do I need to take now I just look at it and go God, that's bloody awful! You know that's, that's something terrible's happened. What happened to that poor woman? That poor man? So you you just changes your mindset changes, and I think that's what's happened to me.
1: I think what 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 does bring it home to some extent and i agree with you entirely while we're working with the bodies i mean uh paul it, it, it's not all depressing and gloom and doom there is some humor goes on never um pointed at the, the dead no,
0: it's not disrespectful
1: that's right but the days that i think um caused the, the the majority of upset amongst the team members were the days that i was talking about uh, in, in that painting behind me, when the women uh, would come to the mortuary mm. uh, and have to identify, yeah. uh, to look at clothing, we could never even tell them that the clothing that were, we put out for them, taken from the dead, had belonged to their loved ones because, you know, as Mary mm. knows, you can never say that an article of clothing yeah. belonged to any individual because during a four year siege, clothing. Changed hands all the time. People died, and so on and so forth. But the women who, before that point, believed that their their their, their husbands or sons uh, were still alive, they knew when they saw the clothing that that they were dead, and uh, and those were days when there is a complete. Gloom would 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 descend in the mortuary, and um and I noticed myself that the team were, um were were, were very quiet and subdued after the women came to 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 that, and that kind of that kind of brought it home, uh, I think to to all of us. But uh, but that those weren't those weren't occasions that happened often. But when they did, the the I tried to tell people that. It should refocuses in what we're trying to do here, and, and mm-hmm. I think to some yeah. extent that that helped, you know, because uh, because we, we became sometimes quite complacent about uh, mm-hmm. a, about the work. You tend to forget who the victim. sometimes I couldn't tell whether the victim was a Muslim, a Serb, or a Croa, or or whoever. No. We, we were just dealing with um, you know one victim after another, um, mm-hmm. uh, so. So, yeah, just go on with it.
0: And did you ever come over to Ireland? this was back in the 70s that this had happened. This was, yeah, this was the independent commission uh, for the location of victims that was set up. Um, They were looking for the victims' remains. And these were, I think there were 16 in total that had disappeared during the troubles in Northern Ireland. And um, a lot of them were thought to have, the bodies had been transported into the south and had been buried somewhere in the south. And Brian Farrell, the city mortuary, city coroner, I should say, sorry, um, was charged with um, dealing with the situation and dealing with the what would hopefully would be inquests into these matters. And as part of that, he asked me and he knew my background from, I told him about going out to Bosnia and who I'd been out with and how successful it had been and the professionalism of the people I'd been working with. That was radiographers, um, the APTs, anthropologists. And he said, Why don't we set up a mini team to do the same here? Because very naively, we thought that we were going to get all of these bodies, one after the other, and we would ha- have this little team. And within a couple of weeks, everything would be done and dusted. But that's not the way it worked out. But um, it was useful in that you came over, everybody came over, the ones that were hand-picked came over, a little group of people, and we set up. The mortuary in the the backyard of the coroner's court in anticipation of these bodies arriving. And um, at that stage, we only dealt with two that had come in, and then there was a large hiatus. And eventually, we had to disband the little group because <laughs> it was just getting ludicrous because we were sitting twiddling our thumbs waiting for the next bodies coming in. But that was um, very kindly Robert and the others uh, agreed to come over and, and help out. And which turned out to be again a very difficult situation because it's taken years and years and there's still some of those bodies have not been recovered and it's an ongoing um well an ongoing search
2: but but it was great it was great Robert that you were able to come over and share that experience that you that you had had in Srebrenica et etc etc so that the protocols which you had uh, established there I mean it, it's brilliant to have someone with so much experience and such skill and such empathy for the work that you do. You know, you 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 come across as someone who is extremely proud and careful and protective of the dead and looking after them and protecting them and honouring their 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 work, rather honouring their their lives, which would have been hugely important for those as the women that you describe coming into the mortuary and you know suddenly they're 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 confronted with their worst fears. And you couldn't be casual and you couldn't be flippant there. You you would have needed to have a, a certain standard and, and and courtesy to put it at its kindest for these people. So to bring all that to, to here in Ireland, because as you know our politics is vitriolic and rageful at the best of times, it's very important to have someone with that experience for us. I think it's brilliant that you came over, and it it reflects yet again on Mary Cassidy being such a a forward thinking forensic pathologist that she invited you here. Exactly,
1: and in fact that was the uh, the nucleus of a team that was that met together. We had uh, an Australian anthropologist, a London uh, a radiographer, um, and uh, uh, and the team got again t- t- together once again um, to go out to Sierra Leone. Um, uh, uh, and um, that was, that was uh, you know, I don't know how much time you've got, but that, that in turn certainly was a story uh, on its own. But you're absolutely right, Paul, in the fact that um, that the same people who knew the, uh, our habits and, uh, uh, and our working practices and so on could come together and just automatically carry on with the job because often uh, when you get a new team together, uh, you spend sometimes days trying to figure out who's doing what, who's responsible for what. Um, It was wonderful just to be able to go to a certain place like Ireland and just get on on with the work that was basically the same work um, as anywhere else in the world really know with the view of having uh, the, uh, the the bereaved the the, the families of the, the the dead foremost in our minds um, because they as you allude to are the people that that we need to connect with and uh, back out in Bosnia we had so many anthropologists who had no experience mm-hmm. in dealing with yeah. um, with families or with the uh, uh, or, or, or with even flesh bodies um Quite often they had to draw their attention to the fact that um, that these people are, 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 had suffered, their loved ones are still suffering, and to emphasise the need for dignity and respect, having what those people had undergone themselves and their families were still suffering from. So it was an extremely part of the job. And once again, pathologists and technicians were foremost in trying to um, ensure that that was what happened. Uh, because apart from anything else, the, the, the families that uh, that we de- dealt with, they would never know who we were, where we came from, or no. anything. But it was still important no. um, that mm-hmm. we could be able to face them should we need to and say we cared for your for your loved one after the the, the suffering that they had endured. And that that I found um, gives them an awful lot of comfort because that somebody did care for them before they were finally laid to rest.
0: But you've carried on that work now with um, remembering Srebrenica.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Uh, and that was a revelation. That's an important point that's worth mentioning, Mari, because um, Mm -hmm. forensic people are so used to not talking about their work. Uh, um, Mm -hmm. And for good reason, there's all kinds of confidentiality issues uh, you know, regarding cases, etc, etc. Yeah. But they often wouldn't talk about them even amongst their friends or their families. It just became a culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it occurred to me, I think, um, when I first encountered remembering Srebrenica, that um, this was a, a charity that was keen to try and um, and let, uh, get people to understand what happened out there, to learn mm-hmm. the lessons from it, but in particular, to get forensic people, perhaps, for the first time um, to actually talk about their their experiences without going into any details about particular court cases. The serious point is that the the work that folk like Mary have done and maybe myself is going to be uh, broadcast in in programmes like this, Rosie, I think, to do a great deal to promote the the story of of what happens uh, among the dead, uh, not just in war zones, but but every day in countries th- every country throughout the world, you know, and there are people that do that are normal human beings, you know. So, uh, so that's yeah. worth, worth worth promoting.
2: It would appear to be that the the at the beginning of our conversation, when you were telling me that the 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 position that you retired from has now matured, thankfully, to the person that we're talking to today, who has shown an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary insight into the work that you've done. And it reminds me so much of talking to Mary over the years, the importance of being uh, a friend almost to the families of the dead, and more importantly, to be protective of the dead themselves, because they have no voice apart from the voice that you share. And that Mary shares with her findings at autopsies, et cetera, it's hugely hugely exactly, important.
0: but he was a misguided art student who now is now a recognized artist I mean you started to use it as therapy with um you know coming back from from uh, bosnia, but um you don't just deal with that side of things, you mean you do other Examples of painting. I mean, you do landscapes, you do portraits, you do a fair mixture, and I must admit they're they're fabulous, absolutely fabulous.
1: Well, thanks very much, Mary. That um, I, I don't do it for a living or anything. Fortunately, I don't I don't need to. But uh, and all of the paintings that. I've done regarding Bosnia. There's been two full exhibitions of them. Any yeah. proceeds from them go to good causes, whether it be the charity, Remembrance Srebrenica, or more importantly for me, um, relative uh, related charities in Bosnia, such as especially mm. the ones who look after women who suffer sexual violence that who have no no income whatsoever. So I, I'm keen to mm. to help them. But well,
0: who would have thought that that little boy that left. Glasgow with his uh, bag over his shoulders heading down to London um, would have taken such a circuitous route through all sorts of horrors as we've heard um, to end up where you are today as a vetted artist and I'm glad to say that I know you and I know you as a, as a dear friend and uh, thank you for everything you've done.
1: No thank and it's all your fault Mary because you were such an inspiration <laughs> to me that um, <laughs> You know, instead of being terrified of pathologists, um, uh, I fell in love in a very um, appropriate way with with pathology and pathologists. So, uh, so thanks to you for that. I have to say.
0: Yeah, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> if
2: I can put it my toughest words, Robert, it's been an absolute delight just listening to you this morning. Absolutely oh, Thank delight. you very much,
1: Paul. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that you would say that. Thanks very much indeed. No,
2: I'm the one who's honoured
1: Well, you.
0: Robert, uh, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Um, it's called Life and Death, and certainly you've shown us that there's life in the old fart get. And thank you so much for contributing today and telling us all about what happened out in, in Bosnia, all the experiences you've had. and. I hope you have a wonderful retirement and keep painting.
1: Thank you, Mary, very much, Mary. It's been, it's been a great honour to speak in, uh, in this group, but uh, especially in seeing you again. And you still have family in Glasgow, our friends, certainly. And I hope that you'll drop by uh, the posh end uh, in the West End of Glasgow and come and <gasps> see me and we can have a, a pint or a cup of coffee or something.
0: It's a date. Thanks, Robert. Bye. You've been listening to Life and Death with me, Dr. Mary Cassidy. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud, produced by Jason Ford and Rosie Putnam from Mabel Productions, edited by Rosie, and with music by Sasha Putnam, presented by me and Paul Carson. Next week, we'll be talking to the father of forensic science in Ireland, Dr. James Donovan, Jim to his friends and colleagues. He was the first forensic scientist in Ireland, And amongst other things, we'll be talking about how he set up the first forensic science lab in Ireland and also a number of the crimes he was involved with.